sit down and buckle up. It's time for the Pirate Monk Podcast. Welcome to the Pirate Monk Podcast. I am Rob, my good friend from Whittier, California. Pablito. Hey, Pablito. Good to see you. Good to be with you today. You look good. Great to be with you. Man, I wish I was in Whittier with you. I I still think of my short weekend uh, in December very fondly, and I can't wait to get back. Yeah, it was. we miss you over in Whittier, and... We had some crazy weather this week. I don't know if you heard about the California. We were like, it rained for like two straight days. That's, right. that's a big that's deal right. for that's us. Right. Hey, so you I showed survived. me your man cave. Yeah, you showed me your man cave. It's amazing. I, I wish I was there every Sunday watching football with you. But you were going to put in a drain, like cut the cement out, you steer the water away. Keep the water from flooding that bad boy. How, how did it did it survive the torrential downpours? Well, the thing is, it's just not usable because I I want to I want to have some amenities. I want to have a rug. I want to have a make it a little bit plush. I know it's a man cave, but you know. It's, uh, so anyway, I have a, usually have a rug <laughs> down there, and yeah. I cannot keep water after a few hours of rain from getting into that low spot on on my patio, uh, which is yeah. into the gazebo, which is the man cave. So. Um, it is, uh, you know, it's one of those things where rain just goes through there and then I, I have one of those like squeegees and I'm just flushing it through and then I'm putting the fan on it once it's done and trying to keep the, the, the wood from, you know, getting rot or termites and stuff. But anyway, so that's, that's been the journey, but I, um, I was not able to pull the trigger on the project of, uh, putting the drain in yet. That might be my mart, my spring break. Uh, you know, being a teacher, I get spring break off. So maybe it'll be then or some other time. And you're welcome to come out and I'll buy you a, a chimichanga and a, I'll buy you another Gwen <laughs> Stefani burrito. If you come out here and help me uh, in March, How, what, is, is yeah. that, is that, is that good for you? <laughs> is it, is it BYOS? Bring, bring your own sledgehammer. <laughs> yeah. Um, can check that on in the, in the, in the, in the luggage. <laughs> Well, let me let me ask you this question because we are dialing in on behalf of uh, both Nate and Aaron, and, and again, just feel really honored that we get to do this Absolutely. to help out. Um, but my question, being a Southern California, is it is it like you know, is it against the law? Is this you know blasphemy if you root for the a Super Bowl team that's from north of you, like the 49ers? I mean, is there a distinct dividing line, north and south? of who you can and cannot root for out there in the, in the sports world. <laughs> yeah. You know what? Um, guess what? Uh, we have multiple personality disorder out here in the <laughs> LA area because we were without our, our, our rationale is we were without football, this major market, right? Uh, one of the biggest cities in the country did not have an NFL team for 16 years. Okay. Oh, wow. So yeah. Uh, yeah. that, you know, you, you see a bunch of cowboy fans, Patriots, 49ers, Steelers, uh, and then now the Rams and Chargers are back, and so of course Rams and Chargers. And um, but yeah, it's it's an interesting journey. Um, uh, it, so really, all bets are off. I, I see Packers sometimes. It's um, there are just people rooting for all kinds of teams. There's groups getting together in different. Oh, that's the Packers bar over there. You know, if you want to watch the game with Packer fans, yeah, and different yeah, things like yeah. that. But it's um, it's interesting. 
it's an interesting thing. Sometimes I'll watch a, a Chargers or a Rams game, and it seems like the other team's fans uh, outnumber the Rams fans. And even though they won the Super Bowl a couple of years ago, it's pretty crazy. Um, yeah, but to answer your question, that is an interesting thing. As you know, and we're not, you know, one of my favorite things about the Super Bowl is it's the last sporting event in my mind before spring training for you know happens for for baseball right i'm a big mlb guy as you know one of my goals in life is to visit all 30 stadiums i'm 21 in i have nine more to go and so uh you know i love baseball and of course i'm I'm a big time dodger fan grew up grew up into that as, as a fan you know my dad bringing me to games but my my little mind did not never understood how you know as and if you don't know the dodgers and the giants came from new york to la or to california right and um they were rivals in new york and they did not stop being rivals when they came to california so that's like a <laughs> true rival and so right. so i got friends that love the 49ers and they you know, root against san francisco all year when, the, when it's baseball season and then they, and then they join the san francisco <laughs> fans when it's time for the 49ers so I never did that. Um, you know, I don't really, uh, I, you know, I think for me, I, when it comes to the Super Bowl, it's more of a, it's a, it's more, more of a micro look. Uh, I, I love the Brock Purdy story, Mr. Irrelevant, you know, loves the Lord. Um, you know, I like Patrick Mahomes too. I just like the stories within it. Um, and yeah, and, and a lot of people's favorite player this season or this Super Bowl is going to be Taylor Swift. So I don't know. Are, are you a Swifty, <laughs> Rob? Talk to me. No, no, no. Thanks for asking, but not a Swifty. You you mentioned, I'm curious, this, this popped into my head probably about three or four weeks ago. So I'm curious. So how does, by the way, Brock Purdy, he played, you know, Arizona kid played for Iowa state. So oh, my, come on. You know, my favorite college football team, um, and did some really cool things for that, that program. And so he, there's a fondness that I have for nice. him and toward him. But he's really you know, kind of elevated because he's elevated. His testimony is elevated. Sure. And he, he's very consistent with how he approaches his testimony, and I honor him for that. But I'm curious. It's it feels similar to back, and I'm going to rewind 15 years or so. It feels similar to Tim when Tim Tebow made the NFL. Okay. Um, you know, in terms of how both of them approach, you know, their testimony and giving honor to to God and and, and thanking Him for you know everything that's going on. And yet there's two different reactions. I, I sense two different reactions going on across the U.S. I mean, Tim Tebow was, you know, I don't know. I don't want the right word is, but I would just say not accepted. Um, his approach, for some, I would say. For some. Yeah, polarizing, right? And yet for some reason, uh, Brock Purdy's accepted. Now, maybe I'm remembering, maybe they both approached it differently, but it feels like it could have been a big distraction at some point this season and certainly Super Bowl week, but... I have not heard, you know, haven't heard it come from a distracting or a uh, a polarizing point of view, and and I think that's a good thing. But I don't know if you, would you agree with me on that, or do you sense anything different going on? You know, I I um I did watch a little video of a reporter asking Brock Purdy, uh, you know, what he's what verses he's been looking at, and he's Psalm twenty three of all the of all the scripture, something we recite every Samson meeting. That's what he's been meditating on this season, and it was just refreshing. It was interesting that the reporter asked. Uh, I, it didn't seem like he. It was a gotcha kind of question. It was like seemed like it was a curious question. Um, 
Uh, but I haven't, I never did that comparison between uh, Tim Tebow and doing the Tebow where he kneels like he's praying when he scores a touchdown and, and all that. I, I just, I don't know. I always loved Tim Tebow. In fact, last night, little known fact, um, he, he hosts a number of Night to Shine. I'm a little bit changing the subject. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I love what he does in, in communities. I am a, a, a teacher of individuals with special needs. And, uh, and so even one of my students went to a night to shine. It's kind of like a, it's a time to honor individuals with other abilities and, uh, and a time to just celebrate them and just bless them. And, uh, I mean, they, they, they just, they go to pull out all the stops to just the red carpet, the picture, the glam, the, all the best food. And, uh, and so that is a special place in my heart. So I, I will, I'll never be one of those that uh, downplays Tim Tebow's influence and and his calling in life, and I just think he's a he's got a good heart for the, all that. And, and I think he was a good, you know, football player too, of course. And uh, and his he, he led the Broncos to beat the Steelers in the playoffs, and so I wasn't too happy about that one year, but happy for him again, you know, as an individual. <laughs> Yeah, you and me both, by the way, being Steeler fans. Um, well, good. Thank you. Hey, real quick, uh, rapid fire before we get over to our guest. Uh, favorite football party food slash snack? Okay, so I have become the arancini man. Okay, that Ooh, is come a, on. the arancini are Sicilian rice balls. Oh, and so wow. I brought them to last Super Bowl party. It's a newer thing for me. I've been bringing them to holidays. Uh, it's something that my family, being from Anna, Sicily, my grandfather was born there. And I, when he was a year old, he emigrated to the U.S. And and that recipe stayed on the east eastern side, the Brooklyn and Long Island area of the country. And of course, my grandfather and and you know when my sister when my mom was. A teenager moved to the California, moved cross country to California, and that's where this side of the family grew up. So, uh, you know, was continued to live and, and thrive. So that I am happy and honored to bring that tradition uh, when I go to I, the Super Bowl party. I, I love that. I love that. It's tender because of the story. I I would venture if, if I was wagering on Super Bowl Sunday in Vegas, I would wager a whole lot of money that the one of the least brought Super Bowl party snacks is Arancini's Arancini's from Sicily. Because <laughs> uh, I've never heard of it. But I'm glad that you make them. I'm glad that you're good at them. And and I have like a struggle for my worth as an Arancini advocate here. I'm an AA. I'm an Arancini advocate. And I'm going to have to have a... I'm gonna have to make some for you and the guy yeah. next time we end up in person somewhere. Uh, I, I know you always wanted to make, watch me make my my meatballs and homemade spaghetti sauce. Um, yes. Maybe I'll do that. I, 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 the funny thing is, I used the homemade spaghetti sauce in the center with a little bit of meatball in the center of the arancini. Wow. I don't. I'm not a peas in there. I don't, the matzah. Everybody. Some people do it different ways. I want some meat and some sauce. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> well, I love it. I love it. Well, thank you. I can't wait. How to about you? What's your favorite uh, food at a Super Bowl party? Oh, Mar- uh, you know, Marantini. yeah, real quick for years, we would buy the, the Sam's club, two dozen Super Bowl cupcakes. You know how they just, they'd make them in like, you know, by the millions 
and they're just sitting out in these containers and they look so beautiful, right? It's fresh frosting, the colors of each team. Um, and out of 24, I'd probably, I would personally cover about 20 of them <laughs> in about a three day span. So my favorite, anything with buttercream frosting, I, uh, I avoided Sam's club this year so that I could stay good. I've, I've, I've ruled out buttercream for my life for at least another 30 or 30 or so days. So, oh, okay. um, yep. So I'm going to try to stay, uh, stay, stay good with my diet tomorrow. And I predict tomorrow the team with the most points will win. That's <laughs> yes i'm with you it'll be a great game and uh we'll talk about it next time we get together well hey listeners you are in for a treat uh with mr ray ortland and we will be back in just a moment with the pirate monk podcast you know listening to podcasts like this one is certainly helpful to your recovery and so are the many books that we recommend but Recovery is not something that any of us can do by independent study. None of us can recover alone. We heal in relationship. So it's crucially important for you to find a recovery community, a Samson Society group, or a Pure Desire group, or a Celebrate Recovery or other 12-step program somewhere where you can bring your real self and say the real truth. And there's another resource that you can draw on one that's been extremely helpful to me over the years. In those times when my recovery has plateaued or when I've gotten stuck or I've started to lose ground, I've found that there's nothing like time with a highly skilled, well-trained therapist or recovery coach to get me moving again. Now, sometimes that's taken the form of a weekly counseling appointment. At other times, it's meant attending a week-long or a weekend intensive. If you're ready to take a dramatic step forward in your recovery, let me suggest LifeWorks Christian Counseling. Uh, These are good folks. The Hunters and their staff get addiction. They understand trauma, and their approach is both biblically and scientifically sound. They work with individuals and couples, They're based in Madison, Mississippi, but they can work with you anywhere, remotely, through Zoom. And at various times throughout the year, they also run weekend intensives for Samson guys. To learn more, go to lifeworks.ms. That's lifeworks.ms. Or give them a call at 601-790-0583. Welcome back to the Pirate Monk Podcast. Oh, Nate is still in Florida and he's not with us, but that's okay because we've got Ray Ortland here, another Tennessee fellow. Oh, it's going to get so Southern on you guys, even though we're both California guys faking it. I don't know. Welcome, Ray. Thank you. Great to be with you, Aaron. So I am excited. I was actually uh, shown your book, The Death of Porn, Men of Integrity Building we're a world of nobility. Uh, a guy just sent me a link to that recently. And now it looks like that book's been out a couple of years now, a year and a half. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I then did a little bit of a deep dive into some, not a deep dive. It was a shallow dive into some of the other things you've been writing and what you've been involved in. 
And I'm just curious how you ended up here in Tennessee and, and, and what you're the pastor to pastors. I don't know what that means, but I know that I'm, you know, I spent 22 and a half years in ministry. I'm ready. Pastor me, Ray, pastor me. I'm ready. (laughs) Well, pastor to pastors. I don't know what it means either. Uh, It was just very nice honor that the uh, elders of Emmanuel church gave me. And I'm, I'm thankful, but uh, yeah. So tell me, uh, tell me about the journey that you you came from. We we're talking about Southern California. You ended up in Georgia, then in Tennessee. You've been a part of the Gospel Coalition and have written books on marriage and how the church. I, I love the gospel. How the church portrays the beauty of Christ and marriage and the mystery of the gospel. Like these things are super important to me, but. Tell me about how you came to feel that gospel, how, however you're defining it, became such a central thing to what you're writing and how that led you to write about porn. Yeah. Um, I think when we follow Jesus, he said to every one of us, follow me. Mm-hmm. And we said, I'm not very good at this, but sign me up. And so that's what we're doing. And we're, we're all stumblers but um, but we're stumbling toward Jesus. So that's all that matters. And when we follow Jesus imperfectly, but vitally, sincerely, even at times sacrificially, I think our lives become less predictable, more mysterious, more surprising, and even wondrous. So, I mean, you and I grew up out in Southern California. Honestly, I thought I would never leave Southern California. I I just worship the ground out there. I love it. I love the beach. I love the mountains. I love I love the freeways. I love everything about it. And okay, you're I, the first person to have ever uttered those words. I think. Oh yeah, and I even like the traffic. I just it's, but I've never lived there in all my adult life. Mm. Now, how the heck did that happen? Instead of I've spent my primary ministry years in the American South. That, I did not see that time that coming. I did not have time to duck. Um, but this is what, as you well know, this is, this is what happens when we follow Jesus. Um, our lives turn into ongoing surprises. And uh, because he's the great strategist, we're, we're not, we're not, uh, masterminding the evangelization of the nations. Mm-hmm. We're, we're just trying to do the next right thing with, with empty hands opened up before him. He's the, he's the great strategist. And even as our friend John Piper w- wrote that wonderful book, Don't Waste Your Life, I think it's also true our Lord says to us, I will not waste your life. My promise is upon you. You follow me, and I'm all in with you. So our lives go in directions we can't foresee. It's kind of like river rafting. You know, I mean, you're, you're out of control. The, the water's rough. Uh, you're, it's splashing all over you. You don't know what's around the next bend, but you're having a blast. So, so tell, tell me in how God wired you. In, in from from your youth, little Ray, did he wire you in a way that surprises felt exhilarating and exciting, or were surprises terrifying and kind of locked you up? 
That's a very interesting question. And the, I think the truth of it is, and this is sometimes hard for my dear wife, Jenny, I have high tolerance levels for chaos, high tolerance levels for ambiguity. Um, I can make decisions very quickly. They might not be wise decisions, but <laughs> I can formulate a decision quick. I don't wring my hands. It doesn't look like a 5149 to me. I just, boom, I think I know what to do and I go for it. So yeah, I think the Lord made me, Jenny would say, he made me an adventurer. And um, so I, I think I am actually predisposed to kind of enjoy this crazy ride. So you operate from your gut, you trust your gut, and you trust that, hey, I'm not saying it'll all work out, but I trust God and how it's going to work out. That's yeah, kind of what I, I'm hearing in that. I don't trust my gut. I just... Um, <laughs> you seem I, to listen to it. <laughs> well, I've made so many bad mistakes along the way that I do have reservations about myself. But I do think that in God's providence, I'm a huge believer in the providence of God. In other words, reality is not random. Mm -hmm. Reality is not chancy. Um, behind the appearance of, uh, behind the phenomena, the veil of phenomena, behind the appearance of things, the outward look of things, God is right there. Mm -hmm. And um, he is masterminding and crafting and guiding uh, this crazy adventure that we're all walking through. So, so how, how how have you learned at your, at how old are you? 73. Okay, so close to my age. We're simple. <laughs> how have you, as you've gotten older, you said, here are these mistakes I made, but I, I still trust that, you know, that, that bigger, yeah. bigger yeah. piece of God's sovereignty that he's involved in those mistakes uh, did not shake the foundation of his kingdom. Mm-hmm. How have you learned to address the idea of mistakes and success and failure in general, thinking about Peter would have never had the Sea of Galilee without denying Christ, which was such a mistake, was such a failure, and yet it was so crucial to the next thing he was doing. And so sometimes it can, I don't know, it can just be terrifying when we think when we judge what is failure, when God has so much in mind that is bigger than the moment of failure? I think it's a both and. I mean, I, I both, um, I have stabbed the Lord in the back so many times. I've betrayed trust that others have put in me. I have failed. My The only difference between me and I'm sure 99% of our listeners is I've sinned more than y'all have. <laughs> oh man, it's a contest. I kind of want to join in on this. Uh, <laughs> but I've got a theologian friend of mine um, named Greg Beale, who has, he built out the category redemptive reversals. And the Lord is a world-class expert, a professional at redemptive reversals. So he, we are damaged goods, and it's our own fault. We hand ourselves over to Jesus, and he, he redemptively reverses, that is, flips into fruitfulness, into um, liberation, flourishing, and happiness for other people, the very points in our own lives where we have the most regrets. Um, 
Because what we then move, we, we move forward through life in open confession of sin. We move forward in humility. We move forward in honesty. We, we learn to, to do some owning up. And that is, people gravitate toward that. Because everybody is, is walking around, lugging around so many regrets. And we're all um, kicking ourselves thinking, boy, I wish I could get a do-over on that. But what if there's somebody we know who has been even stupider than we've been, and we can see God is with him, God doesn't hate his guts, God is restoring him and performing these redemptive reversals, man alive. Who wouldn't love to be part of that? When I think of Paul calling the church to be an example of him as he's an example of Christ, I immediately think of all of his confessions about his struggles, chief of sinners, thorns that he prays for them to go away. They're not going away. And and I've always suspected that how that was to be interpreted was imitate me as I imitate Christ being very open about my failure and these redemptive reversals, because if we only give an example of the person who has it all put together, then everybody else has to think, oh, I have to be like Paul, the guy who has it all put together. And I don't think that's what he meant. No, no. That would be a crushing burden for anyone else to aspire to. I love the realism of the Bible. The Bible does not idealize anybody. It doesn't idealize us. And it is an honest book about flawed people. Therefore, it's a book for you and me. And so how, yeah, go ahead. No, you go ahead. Well, I, I want to know because this all ties in to a, a lot of conversations we've had with men struggling with porn and the regrets, how it's hurt their family, how it's hurt their own souls. So how did you come to just a year and a half ago decide, I'm going to write this book about porn? <laughs> Great question. Um, can't give a short answer, but here's did my you, answer. Yeah, okay. you don't have to. I want to poke the devil right in the eye. I want, to, I want to give him a really bad day, and I want to have fun doing it. I want to make him regret that he ever messed with us. I, I want to make myself, I want the personal pleasure, the personal satisfaction of being a pain in the neck to the one who despises us, despises Christ. He hates our sexuality. He hates our integrity. He hates women. He hates us men. And what if, what if we stop playing just defense? What if we start playing offense for a change? So that really sounded good to me. And plus this, Porn is a justice issue. It, I don't even use the word purity anywhere in the book. I think that has the wrong connotations. Porn is a justice issue. This isn't about me. This book is not the death of porn. It's not about me upgrading my sucky life from three to six on a scale of one to ten. That is self-centered. This is about me standing up as a formidable, restored man of God and doing something with my life that my children and grandchildren can feel really good about. Now, here's what I mean. Uh, 200 years ago in our country, 
it was legal to own a human being. And now we look back on that and it's appalling to us. But it wasn't appalling 200 years ago. And as we look back at the Christian community in our country, 150, 200 years ago, during the slavery years, we see three human profiles among the Christians. One, slaveholders. And we're grieved over them. We wonder what on earth were they thinking? Secondly, not only slaveholders, but we also see passive onlookers. People who just kind of shrugged their shoulders and said, well, what can you do about it? You know, these things happen, uh, whatever. And, and we wonder about them. Why didn't you say something? Why didn't you stand up? And uh, we, 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 we're grieved for them. But thirdly, we also see active liberators. There were slaveholders, there were passive bystanders, onlookers, and there were active liberators. And we before them. Before you move on past that thought, I want to ask you with the passive onlookers where we say, what were you thinking? Why didn't you say something? What do you believe would be the possible answers for that group? Yeah. Oh, it's usually a matter of if I can if I understand human nature at all. Exhaustion, cowardice, the busy pressures of today's to-do list, perceiving life as basically a lonely fight for survival, so I don't even have margin to think about anybody else and care about them. All of these, these thoughts and feelings that are deeply tragic, and they sure are not following Jesus. Well, like. And they come in a package of enculturation where it's blurry. I mean, if we're talking about passive people during the time of slavery, they're in the middle of a culture who's kind of rounded the edges of this is normal. And so you start to see it as normal. And so I can focus on my issues, all the, all the other things you said. It's a lot easier to swallow that pill because it has rounded edges. Yeah. And culture seems to do that. All right, so we've got these three groups and we've got the liberators. Yeah, and we look back at them now and we think, wow, they're so inspiring. Um, they, they're moving to us. We, we'd like to think we would have been them if mm -hmm. we had been located in history at that point. But the reason, obviously, the reason I'm saying this, Aaron, is that, is that we are facing a similar situation now. And... Um, if I'm looking at porn, I'm supporting the brutal industry that, listen, wherever porn goes, coercion goes, trafficking goes, degradation goes. What 10-year-old girl who's, who's now on a porn site was, was thinking years ago, boy, that's really how I want to spend my life. She was degraded into it. She was... Um, worn down and diminished and beaten down into it. And that makes me so angry. I think it, it has to make Jesus very angry. He doesn't despise the women and girls on those porn sites. He cherishes them. And just as during our years of uh, legal slave owning in this nation, he didn't despise the slaves. He was on their side. 
And I believe it's time for us. Listen, when I was in, you know, a kid in junior high and high school, in the 50s and 60s, uh, even into the 70s, cigarette smoking was cool and suave and sophisticated and like, you know, Humphrey Bogart cool, right? Yep. But in fact, the tobacco industry was putting out products that it was literally killing people. And in the 70s and 80s into the 90s, our nation shifted. I have seen in my lifetime a culture-wide shift in the perception and characterization of the tobacco industry. And now it's perceived as problematic, morally dubious, and certainly bad for people. So it has been recategorized in our entire culture and moved over to the marginal. And it's now on the defensive as it should be. Well, it's time now for that same thing to happen to the porn industry. And I believe that we're reaching a tipping point where, um, for example, uh, if you follow on uh, social media, Lila Micklewait, does okay. that ring the bell? No, it doesn't. Oh, my goodness. Lila Micklewait is um, an incredibly articulate, courageous advocate and voice against the porn sites that allow users to upload videos of appalling criminal behavior, which are then monetized and viewed thousands and even millions of times. Are these like illegal sites? No. Or just, just user run? That's right. The, the safeguards are not functional. I mean, even she's not making the case porn shouldn't exist. She's making the case criminal activity should not be monetized and made available for the viewing pleasure of millions of, of, of brutalized men. Brutalized women brutalized men and somebody's making a lot of money off of that and yeah Lyle and others are rightly and compellingly and successfully making their case against this this wickedness of our time so okay i i am 100 percent with you we have been blessed to talk to people who have been in the sex industry in a number of ways. And it always makes that injustice piece stand out as like, Oh, here's the face behind that. Exactly. And that is compelling for someone that wants to stop looking at porn. They say, Oh, okay. I, I want to follow Jesus. I don't want to look at porn. I see this as an injustice. And then when they stumble again, it, can add a layer of shame. Not only are you doing something you shouldn't be doing, but now you are keeping this wheel of injustice rolling. So what, what is the message to the person who needs to hear this, but is in the struggle and needs to know that God is for them as well and wants them to step into that place of justice, to love justice? What's the message to them? That's a great question. It's a twofold message. 
One, we must face ourselves honestly. And it does not help if we dance around the issues with nicey-nice words and nicey-nice phrases like, I slipped up. I mean, that's just a, that, that's a hypocritical sort of glaze of smiley evasion on the surface of deep evil. I'm struck in Psalm 51 in the Old Testament when David, after he committed adultery, and had a man, had the husband killed, thinking he would cover his tracks that way, he has to go before God. And in Psalm 51, he uses the word evil to describe what he did. Now, until we're ready to use that word, I mean, that's a serious word. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Until we're ready to use the word evil to describe something we have done, we're not ready yet. But when we're brokenhearted enough and devastated enough that that word becomes the only appropriate one we, we can use, all right. Now we can get we can start getting somewhere. So that's the first thing. We have to stop using um, hypocritical, nicey words and use strong words to describe the actual truth of what we're involved in. That's the first part. Second part. However bad it is, we can then dare to believe that the grace of God in Jesus is just that big and even bigger. Whatever we put out on the table, however horrible and truly shameful, the Jesus on the other side of the table, he puts out mercy, cleansing, hope, dignity, forgiveness, covering, everything seriously sinful men really need, and, and sometimes we don't even dare it exists, but when we actually have the nerve to put out on the table in front of him the realities that we have been involved in, he puts out on the table in front of us the realities of his greater grace. Aaron, I believe that if Jesus loves me at every point of my existence except where I actually need him, <laughs> well, he doesn't really love me at all, and he's no savior. For me. I need a savior who will stick with me and stay committed to me and stay at my side, not walk away in disgust, not throw up, but, but stay right there with me at my worst. And that's, in fact, who Jesus is. So we need to go down very deep into the the most hellish, darkest mess we've created, and find to our surprise, that is exactly where the risen Christ is waiting for us. That's where he is. So, I've never, I've never thought about it quite like that. How vocabulary can replace grace. I'm giving myself grace by using words that are easier. But then the elevator doesn't go to to my true rock bottom, yeah. and that that's where the cross is waiting for me, where God's ready to hold me, and for the ascension to be a resurrection that's in the resurrected Christ. 
and not just in safe vocabulary. And that that's a that's a scary thing for all of it. Scary for me. I don't know. Maybe it's not scary for others. I'll only speak for myself. That's scary for me to to find those right words that take the elevator to the true place that God's grace exists and not my manufactured vocabulary that just makes it easier to live with myself, which is not the same thing as healing or resurrection. Yeah, the grace of, of God is not an all-approving grin. It is not flattery. It is not soft peddling. And I think we really experience this powerfully when the ones to whom we confess our sins are not just the Lord, but also a, a Christian brother, mm-hmm. and maybe maybe two really trustworthy um, brothers in Christ who, to whom I can confess my sins. You know, James 5.16 might be the most neglected or even disobeyed command in all the Bible. It says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Now, if we don't believe in the Roman Catholic kind of confessional where you go into the little booth and the priest is on the other side and, you know, if you don't believe in that, okay, fine. I don't either. But then how are we going to confess our sins? Because the command is not going away. And it's not so much a command of of, um, authority as it is a release and a liberation. We all know what it's like finally to break open and tell uh, a trusted friend what's really going on and how we're not doing well. And we just, we, we just, we we vomit out our anguish and our fears and our regrets and he doesn't yell at us uh he he might not even advise us he doesn't fix us what he says is oh man yeah that wow okay let's pray and then he puts his hand on your shoulder and he cries out to god on your behalf therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Now that's where we get traction. Because it's too too easy to confess my sins to God alone. When I when I confess my sins to Sam Alberry and TJ Timms here in my study in 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 uh, Nashville, the the sin that I most want not to confess to them is the sin I most need to confess to them. Because then this false self that I want to project, that false self dies and the real self steps out, the self that actually needs Jesus. Mm-hmm. And they pray for me. And, and it's always so freeing. Now, Aaron, what if that went viral? What, what, if, what if guys like you and I all across the country began to meet regularly with other brothers and this was our only agenda? The porn industry would would start losing customers and users, and a whole lot of other stuff would start getting really great. I think to get there, we have to go back to your not either or, but both and statement earlier. Because when you talk about the grace of God is not a kind of a wink and a smile, it's not a soft peddling. 
that for so many people that means, oh, so it's not safe, where it's where it goes back to, oh no, this is a both and that even the weight of, you know, what we're talking about, the injustice of porn makes it feel like a true confession feels even less safe because it's worse than I thought. I thought I was just a dirty pervert. Now I'm an unjust dirty pervert. But the idea that the gospel, the grace of God and letting the grace the manifestation of God's grace through his people not have to be soft, not have to be, I have to lie at some level or wear a mask, that it is safe while also being that level of real, that that's where the healing's coming from all of that. Yeah, if I can't confess my sins to Sam and TJ, then I really can't confess them to God. That's just one more role play. No wonder it doesn't work. So in this book, The Death of Porn, I actually, um, it's it's not made up of chapters. It's made up of letters. Each, each one begins, Dear Son, because I wrote this to guys in my son's generation, guys in their 20s and 30s. And, um, and it's really, it, it, the, it opens the door to... Guys like us daring to get free. It's not a matter of willpower. Willpower doesn't accomplish much. It's a matter of honesty with other men. And in that place of honesty and prayer with other men, we discover to our astonishment, that's actually where Jesus is. Mm, yeah, it's, it's not magic. He's, he's there waiting for us. And the sooner we show up and go there, the sooner we're going to experience him. What an, what an interesting and important way to see it, that God has given us this conduit to experience his grace. But if I'm leaving them out, and Nate has often said he's searching for, for private answers to his secret sins, and God kept saying, no, I told you how this would work. So the answer yeah. is no. I told you to confess your sins to other people, and that's where the healing would be as you confess and pray, and then you'll find healing. So I love you, son, but no. Mm-hmm. Let me know when you're ready for this other thing. And it it is it it shows the necessity of confession while not being the version of confession that has confused many of us, which has the Catholic confessional booth and there's some kind of authoritative transaction happening. Versus a relational holding of space and bringing the grace of God to each other in our faces, in our hands, in our touch, in our words. And I need to be with Sam and with TJ regularly, not just during Lent or 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 twice a year. I don't know. Um, I was so struck. I, I remember my dad pointed this out to me in 1738 right at the beginning of the first great awakening, John Wesley and some other guys got together and they invented small groups. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And, uh, and they, they drew up some ground rules for how their small groups are going to work. And, and they would get together once a week, sit together in, in London or New York or Boston and, and, and sit in a circle there. And there, there would be one person we call a facilitator. I forget what they called it that person, but he would just gently lead and they would go around the circle 
And each one would open up what they called the real state of the heart. Once a week. And um, with, as I, the, the wording is, uh, with their several temptations and deliverances since the last time of meeting. <laughs> I love that. Wait, say that again. Say it again slowly. Yeah. With, their, would, with their with, several... With their several temptations and deliverances since the last time of meeting. That's so, so good. So check in with each other once a week. Now, here's how I'm doing. Here's what's working. Here's what isn't working. Here's how Jesus is real to me. Here's how uh, I stink. And well, no wonder there was a revival. And and it it how how do you how do you stop the power and beauty of people getting together, desperate people talking about the real state of their hearts? That's just so wonderful. It's powerful. The Lord has ordained. That's where his his blessing comes down um, with uh, freeing power. It. What can I say? You're you're speaking Samson language. This is the core belief that we need to learn to speak truth to one another, and that it might be a journey. Uh, we're not all going to get it right the first time, especially if we've spent decades hiding behind uh, special safe words and masks, but it's necessary, and that is at the core of the end of porn. It's not, you have an audacious title. You do realize that, right? Well, the death of porn. Actually. The death of porn. Yes. That's even more audacious. Yeah, it is audacious, but you know what, man? I mean, who don't we really want to, wouldn't it be great if God set us apart in this generation to do serious injury to this industry? That is, the porn sites are many times bigger than Netflix. Mm -hmm. They are visited bazillions of times every day all around the world. I use the language, let's starve the beast. Uh, I don't think we need to solve this in Washington. I mean, Washington has its place. State capitals, they have their place. They can make their contribution. But it's you and I and guys just like us. I mean, what if 10 years from now, in the boardrooms of the major porn sites, the investors and the CEOs and so forth get together and they're, they're worried that their revenues are falling, uh, the, the business is tanking. We don't have to pass laws to make that happen. No. Let's be a movement. Let's do this. Let's starve the beast. I love it. Yeah, I, I just, I wish everyone else could see your face while you're saying this. I'm appreciating your face right now as much as your words, because there is a whole lot of, yeah, of course, let's go. Let's, let's, uh, let's go get our lance. Let's get our sling and our rocks and let's go. I mean, it's a sling and a rock kind of thing. And for all, I, I'm immediately hearing a couple people's voices in my head saying, Ray, dude, you don't even know what's happening. What's coming up with virtual reality? What's coming up with AI? It's just going to grow infinitely, to which I'm hearing you say, and what? It's still the same solution. Yes. Regardless of what they put forth, it's men learning to say no because of a, a number of reasons, but starting with God's heart for justice and his compassion for both the 
person on that screen and the person with the mouse in their hand and that God wants freedom. And it's not only saying no, Aaron, it's also saying yes. Yeah. It's to the future of the women and girls and boys on those porn sites. What if, I mean, just this morning, I got a follow on social media from an obvious, it was obvious what it is, right? So I don't click through. But what I do every time that happens, I stop and I pray for that precious girl. What if that girl or someone very like her is sitting at our dinner table next Thanksgiving as a member of the family? Why don't we say yes to that? What if, what if the risen Jesus swoops down from above in answer to our prayers and goes and visits her with, with redemptive power? Talk about a redemptive reversal. And she is raised from death to newness of life. And in his mercy, we have some the privilege of, of befriending her, being involved, and she becomes a member of the family so that she's sitting there with dignity and with joy. She belongs. She's included. She's safe. She's getting her life back. And she's there with the, 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 the turkey and the, and, the, and the mashed potatoes and the gravy and the, everything, and she's enjoying the laughter, and she's part of the family. Come on. That's what I want to see. So, so what I'm hearing you say is to simply say no is to keep that world outside of my world. And saying yes is at my deepest hope is that this would invade my world in the most intimate way without false intimacy having to be a single part of it. That's right. It, the reality is those people are precious to the risen Christ above. They are not a problem. They're not a problem to him. They're not a problem to us. They are precious people. His eye is upon them with concern and with tenderness and with sincerity. He has no hidden agenda. If I don't feel that way about them, if I don't perceive them that way, then whose perception have I allowed into my heart? Yes. And what right do I have not to perceive them the way he does? And how let's, does that let's stop yeah. playing this defense? Let's play offense, man. <laughs> well, I am all for being offensive or <laughs> offensive, but either way, I'm, yep. I'm built for that. All right. Okay. Where do people get the book Death of Porn or look at other things you're involved in? Um, how do people get in touch with your world? Oh, well, you're very kind. Well, of course, it's it's uh, available at Amazon, but also renewalministries.com. Okay. Uh, that's where that's where we we hang out, renewalministries.com. And, you know, we would obviously it would be a privilege to hear from anybody. And thank you for um, reaching out to me. And thanks for it's great to meet you and just have this conversation. It's very stirring to me. I really appreciate uh, it. I, I love thinking about this. Not from us being back on our heels all the time, but how do yeah. we how do we swing around and push forward a little bit? Yeah, and I I think that helps the hearts of the strugglers as much as those who don't. It's not their issue whether it's wives or guys who it's not their issue that they can still be involved and start to even understand those who are struggling and want to be on the offense as well. Stop feeling like a victim of their own. 
lusts and desires that are wrapped up in this. We don't. We want freedom. So that's exciting. Welcome back to the Pirate Monk Podcast. Well, that was a, uh, you know, when I think about Ray Ortland, I listen to the interview, Pablito, I think about a man that I wish I had in my life, like, like my whole life, like older, seasoned, wise, um, dropping dimes. <laughs> you know, I, I think about like, you know, like a John Lynch. I mean, some of these guys that we've all studied and listened to interviews and, you know, have been part of our recovery process Ray seems like that guy for me that I wish I could just kind of sit underneath his, uh, his tutelage and listen and just soak it all in. So I, and I know he's, I think he didn't, he either said his age or he didn't say his age. It seems like he's in his seventies. Um, but man, don't we all need somebody like that in our lives? Absolutely. And, and I, uh, he's, he's a man who's, who's lived, lived years, uh, well, and he has he has kind of a sage like quality to him for sure. I'm kind of chuckling inside because, for not obvious reasons, sometimes you remind me of a Ray Ortland, and I I love the fact that I get to walk with you. Not because you're that much older than me, although you are a couple years older. Uh, yeah, you do how you where you're pointing to your gray beard. It's a, walk gray beard. a lot of wisdom in that beard. It's very deceiving. The gray the gray is very deceiving. But you know, I, I one of the, the words that pop out from that interview for me are redemptive reversals. And oh, that's yes. another reason for um, you, you know, you're an example, and there are others in the society that I could say when they when they describe their former self, you know, the person before recovery. I think I cannot relate. I don't know who that person is. I'm looking at a whole different person. You know, I'm talking to somebody who relates to life, not a perfect person, but someone who's worked on them. So I think the safest people in the world are people who are are in recovery. What's what's Nate's uh, saying? Uh, he doesn't not uh, addictions not for everybody, but recovery should be or recovery is. You know, yeah. being able to yeah. being able to go into our heart, know what makes us tick, what motivates us, what what's driving us, what's what our what our story is, and then bring the gospel, bring redemption to it. Allow yes. God to to breathe on it. Allow God to, yes. to love on us in that moment, and let us know the whole time, no matter how we were feeling, we were loved. He was looking on us with compassion. He was looking on us with the same eyes that you know when he looked at Jesus and he he was baptizing him and this is my son and whom my soul delights and I find pleasure, you know, anyway, I just, I love that we can find that, um, later on after trauma, after, you know, and it's a journey, but you know, we can, we can give that gift to, to each other to allow and to sell, root each other on towards redemptive reversals. What redemptive reversals, man, does that resonate with you at all? <laughs> yeah. You know what came up for me as I was listening to you share? And, and uh, you know, I went to uh, Assemblies of God Church when I was a teenager. And and Sunday nights were some version of evangelical or uh, some sort of evangelism night. And, and inevitably what would happen is we'd have a traveling evangelist come through and, and they would they would do their thing, right? And inevitably part of their story was an, a redemptive reversal, you know? And it was always this story of tragedy in their lives uh, that God turned around and here they are in front of everybody. And I remember as a teenager thinking, 
oh my gosh, I wish I had that testimony. That would be amazing, you know, or man, I have nothing ever awful air quotes awful has happened to me right man I, I wonder if anybody would ever be willing to listen to my story and you know lo and, be, lo and behold you know i you know my, my story has evolved into a story of tragedy and you know from the pain of of my addictive behaviors and how i've, I've you know created pain in other people's lives but you know the, the whole idea that that I, I saw and experienced as a teenager and that I think Ray's bringing to the audience through his, his teaching and his writing and through this interview is, yes, but God was with us and he wants to do amazing things. And wow. so I just found so much hope in that concept that you and I are living out together and, and we get to do that with you know other brothers in Samson. And of course, I, I hope for the listeners that they also felt that same hope and desire as they move through their own recovery journey. I love it. No, I, absolutely. Isn't grace, I mean, grace and mercy, right? Gra- and truth, grace and truth are, are, are and, and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever in Psalm 23, right? And like, isn't that the heart of God? He delights in mercy above of sacrifice and I just want to, I just love, I celebrate that with you, that when when somebody has the right picture of the Father looking at them in that struggle, in that journey, and just be able to have com- compassion, have some curiosity, you know, somebody to be with them, and that I th- feel like produces more results than anything else, and yeah, it's a, it's an opportunity. We have an opportunity to be that and do that with individuals. And I love that about Samson Society. I love that about when I get to spend time with you and and brothers like you that are that are safe and and I and I like that. I you know and I also Ray Ortland. I mean, he's just I hear his heart. You know, he he wants he wants her to be an end to the injustice of pornography. And and I love and respect that. And I and I I also just wrote down in my notes like what. How does somebody who has struggled with being part of the demand for pornography and through out of control behaviors, but also wants it wants to be part of the solution? Yes, to end it, end the demand. I mean, what a paradox um, to be in, a, a tension to live in. And I know I've lived in that place. You know, I've lived there. And it's something that it, it feels like a challenge sometimes to have that same compassion and curiosity. And yet that still, still feels like it's part of the solution to, to get the desired result, to, to be, not be part of the, of the demand anymore. What, 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 what are your thoughts on that? Anything? Yeah. I, you know, it's interesting. Ray didn't get into details of his story other than just, I think what he left us with is that he has had a lot of setbacks, a lot of struggle, a lot of failure. And I think there is a component to moving forward in life that starts with the step one, you know, from, from the big book and that's to live in surrender. And, and it's exactly where um, God does his best work. Oh, and, good. and so, you know, I, I'm with you on that. It's this whole paradox of living in surrender, but yet still initiating and moving forward. And it's, it's such a hard, it's like a, such a hard dance step to learn when you're starting the recovery process. Like, how do I live in surrender? But I have to do all these things. And if I do all these things, am I doing it wrong? And, it, you know, and it's just, it almost becomes this, this dance 
of recovery that requires, you know, a, a commitment to surrendering, but yet also a commitment to to initiating, as you described, and, and how Ray talked about it in his own life. So, Got it. well, listen, it's great to be with you again. Um, what an honor to be with with Ray and all the great work that he's done. Uh, listeners, I think you uh, got a, a treat today uh, from what he offered back to everyone. And we look forward to being with you next time on the Pirate Monk Podcast. The Pirate Monk Podcast is produced by members of the Samson Society. Send your feedback or questions to piratemonkpodcast at gmail.com. Please give us a five-star review on iTunes and share the podcast with a friend. For more information, please visit samsonsociety.com.